All right. Good morning. We're gonna we're gonna start right on the dot here because we got another group coming in at uh, 10:45 or 10:15, I believe. So uh, plus you'll need your break. So we're gonna get going. Uh, we'll start with a couple Bible verses to kind of get us in the right theme, and then we'll start going through multiple things regarding how to, if you're a pastor, how to have prophecy teaching, if you will, or prophecy events that will help build your local church, help edify your people, and actually be used as a very excellent evangelistic tool. I'll give some illustrations of that. We'll also spend about 10-15 minutes, we'll go through just a little sample from the Olivet Discourse on how the pictures and uh, the preaching and so forth can fit in that really pumps up your your people, gets them excited, gives them excellent teaching as well as folks that are unsaved. They're like, okay, this you know, they're you got their attention when you're talking about prophecy. So uh, if you have your Bibles, you go to Luke nineteen ten to kind of set the mission. So when I was asked to do this several months ago, I was talking with Les at his home office. And then he's like, we want to do something that kind of pushes the concept of evangelism, building the local church. So I'm like, okay, that fits the mission. So if you go to Luke 19.10, it says, For the Son of Man has come to do what? To seek and to save those who are lost. Same thing is reiterated in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. It says, for this is a faithful saying that what? That Christ Jesus came in the world to do what? to save sinners. So it's the, the mission of Christ was to come and to save sinners. That's that's the focal point. So but we've got 66 books that have all sorts of information, but we're going to show how, or at least hopefully in the next hour, we're going to go through how prophecy can be used to excite people literally within your church. It, it just, and I'll give a lot of illustrations as we go through as to what it can accomplish. Uh, but before we do that, we'll pray. I want to introduce just a couple of people here that are some of my heroes that are in the room this morning. Uh, so let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we have together. I pray that you'll use this session to excite uh, the pastors, uh, the elders, deacons, uh, others within the church, church leaders, those who come and faithfully serve. Father, I pray that you'd excite us about what you can do through uh, this one methodology of using uh, the prophetic scriptures to reach people for Christ and to help build the body of Christ. So, Father, bless us, excite us, motivate us, and encourage us. And I pray that you use this again to reach others and help others. I pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. I want to point out three different people. I'm going to start with the beginning of my life here. Where's going? There you are. Uh, Glenn Pav was my first person back when I was 16 and obviously I'm a little older than 16 now I had a 57 Chevy little dragster and I got saved but I was rebellious as all get out I stopped going to church my mom and dad went to which is now Chad's church Westchester Bible Church in Illinois I was underneath my 57 Chevy which was my God literally and Pastor Glenn shows up, crawls underneath my car. I wanted to beat the fire out of him because nobody touches my car. But <laughs> but uh, he got under there and uh, uh, talked to me, and he kept doing it. He kept coming back to this rebellious, stinky guy, and uh, finally uh, ended up getting right with the Lord, and a lot of it's because of Glenn. 
why I'm bringing him out. I haven't seen him in 45 years. I met him here a couple days ago. I saw his tag, and I'm like, he looks a little bit different. Not much, but a little bit. Uh, but I'm thankful for him. So don't give it. That's a, I mean, that's a good thing on discipleship right there, uh, that little testimony. Kurt Lemansky, Dr. Kurt Lemansky, who is a pastor now at Sheboygan Bible Church, uh, he was the individual that was uh, my dissertation advisor. He was at a Bible at Northland International University, which was Northland Baptist Bible College. We're very good friends. Uh, when I'm in town, I go to his church, so uh, another good guy. The premier individual that I want to get to is sitting right here. Um, most of you already know him. Uh, if you have anything to do with prophecy, Dr. Tommy Eisen and his wife, uh, Janice, they're just absolutely wonderful, wonderful people. He runs the pre-trib research uh, group. It'll be meeting December, what, the, what's the date? The 7th through the 13th in Dallas, Texas. I've been going there for about four or five years. This is the premier group. Folks, I don't know anyone else besides pre-trib right now, Research Center, that is, except the IFCA is running a, a good second, but they have a variety of things. Pre-trib Research Center, which you can go to pre-trib.org. I highly encourage you to do that. Dr. Rice has written more books than I've read. Um, not really, but uh, just a prolific author. He's... He was, I, mean, I, I can't, I'd spend the next hour talking about him instead of what I'm supposed to be, but please, uh, if you're interested in prophecy and using it in books that are the best in the country, you got to go to pre-trib dot, pre-trib.org, E-R-I-B. All right? So thanks, Dr. Aysen, Janice, for being here. I love you guys. They're, they're the best. All right. Uh, Brothers United Strong is our theme. So what are we going to talk about? Prophetic preaching to reach acoustic culture. Valerie's handing out the basic handouts for this morning. We're, I'm going to tell you a little about, about who I am because this is my life. It's Valerie's life. And I'm going to go through a little bit about how this developed and we'll get into uh, a little bit on the Olivet Discourse and I will give you a literal plan, uh, giving you the outline in your handout of how to use, and of course, this is one little niche prophecy. There's other things that you can use and do to help build your local church and get people in and uh, also get your own folks excited. So we'll go through that. Uh, we started Prophecy Focus Ministries about five years ago, and I've been, I have a very, I always say, I'm a very eclectic person. I'm an eclectic, uh, mixed up, if you will, education as well as, as uh, job styles. I've been bivocational up until last January when I retired. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself because if you decide that you would like us to come in and do a prophecy conference, there's several things you can do to help bring people into your church based on my background. So of course that's totally up to you. I'm also part of Friends of Israel. I joined them about two years ago. I'm a volunteer with them. Uh, we'll be speaking in their national conferences this year. I do trips to Israel, lead tours uh, with Jim Showers, the president of FOI. So we have that. We have uh, Israel My Glory. If you don't get that, it's one of the best Jewish. It's, it's evangelistic. It goes through issues in Israel. It goes through doctrinal things. It goes through a lot of things with the Jewish people. It's free. So if you please sign up there, if you don't get it, in fact, Valor, if you want to pass the clipboard around, you can sign up while we're talking and make it easy for you. 
All right, I have a couple of books. I'm not going to go through the, through these. If you come to our table, you'll see them. Uh, the Olivet Discourse, which, by the way, uh, Dr. Ice wrote the foreword for it. Uh, we just got those in, but guess where they're at? My home in Franklin. So uh, we do have a couple of copies here. If you're interested, you can see Valerie at our table, and she can get you signed up on that. All right, let's get to enough commercial. Let's get to the message. So prophetic teaching to reach a caustic culture. Every single one of us are more than aware that our culture is going in the opposite direction that we're going, right? I mean, that's, we know that. Uh, it's, it's evident everywhere. So we're going to talk about how to use prophecy again uh, to reach the masses. So the concept that we're going to go through, how to reach your community. So a little bit about myself and why I can help you do this, or you can take the ideas that I'm going to give you over the next hour and incorporate them with someone else or actually do it yourself. So with Prophecy Focus Ministries, Friends of Israel, last two years, uh, we've been traveling around the country somewhat and doing a little international work, again, all centered on prophecy. Uh, uh, we kind of went through this already, do Israel tours, preach at what's called Prophecy Up Close conferences, which you're, if you're interested in any of these things, we'll bring our team in, uh, bring a couple of speakers in. If you uh, have a building or a, a motel or a large church that can seat at least a couple hundred, uh, we'll bring our group in and run a prophecy conference uh, through Friends of Israel. Winona Lake, Indiana and Lancaster, Pennsylvania are the two uh, national conferences we'll be at. And if you're interested in that, it's at FOI or Friends of Israel, just FOI.org, and they have all their concepts there. Now, you'll see me in a little different look up here. I was, uh, I got saved, as I said, when I was a teenager. I've been to multiple Bible schools. I have a doctorate from uh, Northland International University, which I said Dr. Omansky here was the one who uh, did the dissertation, and you're like, well, what are you doing in a sheriff's uniform? Well, again, uh, eclectic background. I've worked two full-time careers virtually my entire adult life. Uh, I became a, um, with the Sheriff's Department in 1986 to help pay for a church that we had planted. Those of you that are in church planning knows it done pay real well. <laughs> so I joined the Sheriff's Office to, uh, to pay for if you will, the ministry, uh, while we got it running, and the career, for whatever reason, blossomed. Those of you, and some of you already know, David Clark, uh, Sheriff David Clark from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, tall black cowboy guy, uh, in September of 2017, he resigned the sheriff's office by um, statute. I became the sheriff of Milwaukee County, so a million people, thousand employees, so plus doing full-time work with Prophecy Focus Ministries. Why do I bring that up? Because there are people that really, from the outside, others that get really excited about, oh, it's a sheriff or a law enforcement guy coming in. So you can use that. I mean, it's a tool. God, for whatever reason, kept me in that business for 33 years, very successful at it, and it helped. Now, I'm showing this because with the Jewish community specifically, uh, I had a tremendous inroad because, of course, the Jewish people are always under persecution, bomb attacks, threats, that type of thing. So I was able to make friends with many Orthodox Jewish people, conservative, reformed, and 
I've really been embraced by the community. So again, you can use that if you're doing a Jewish event, if you're just trying to reach others, you say, listen, we got the sheriff here. I, I did uh, retire in January, but some people, it just helps bring them in. So we use every methodology that's uh, within reason to try and reach folks. So I'm just going to shoot through these. Uh, again, Ben to Israel, this guy right here, Ronnie Hubani, he's a uh, Jewish individual. He's, missed, he's not a, uh, if you will, a safe Jewish guy. Uh, we become extremely good friends. And again, this guy, everybody in Israel is part of the Israel Defense Force when they're young, unless they're severely injured or handicapped or whatever, and can't. But this guy connected to me because of being a sheriff. You know, it was the military thing and carrying guns and all that stuff. <laughs> uh, Aaron Ben-Gurion, grandson of uh, Ben-Gurion, who if you're familiar with a little Jewish history, so all these different things, but I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. Uh, resources we talked about. So let's get down to business. How do we use prophecy, if you will, to reach the masses? Dr. John Walward, former president of uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, probably, wow, one of the best authors I know, put out more material than uh, the majority of prophecy teachers do. He's just a tremendous guy. But he put this in a book called Every Prophecy in the Bible, which I don't have it here, but I highly recommend you get it. It's, it's just an outstanding volume. It literally goes through every single prophecy in the Bible, gives a little teeny commentary on it. He states in the preface of his book that there are 1,000 prophecies in the Bible. 50% of those, or 500 of those prophecies, have been fulfilled. Like, well, where was that? Well, death, burial, resurrection of Christ... Uh, the various uh, empires that have come and gone from Babylon down through Rome. All of these things have happened. 500 prophecies fulfilled exactly as stated. Now folks, you preach that in church. You get people's attention. Especially the unsaved. There's an illustration uh, goes, I think, way back to Josh McDowell that states if you had, uh, and there's a few folks that were, at least did live in Texas here, if you take, uh, and they, they come up with this thing, if you took silver dollars, put them up, a, I believe it's a foot high, two feet high, doesn't matter, it's, it's a crazy number, and you took one silver dollar with a red X on it, threw it in the middle of Texas, foot high, covered with silver dollars, is the same percentage chance of 500 prophecies coming true exactly as stated. So it's astronomical odds. But of course our God can do that, so it's, it's very telltale. That means there's 500 prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Now, folks, that gets people's attention. All right, it'll get your, it gets Christians' attentions, and it really gets the unsaved attention. So we'll, we'll tell you how to get the unsaved in into your church to hear this kind of thing. So we have 66 books written over about a 1,400-year period, 40 different authors written on three different continents and three different languages, and all this comes together to give you this one volume that we have, the inspired Word of God. So that's a tremendous way to get people's attention. 27% of your Bible, 27% of your Bible was prophecy when written. And again, 50% of those prophecies have come to pass. So, what are the kind of things that people are interested in? Now, I gotta, I, I'm going to try and say this in a politically correct way because it's, it's a kind of an awkward little subject. 
many pastors that I've talked to, through no fault of their own, really have not been trained in prophecy. It's just a fact of life. If you go to Bible school, you go to seminar, seminary and so forth, many of the schools do not emphasize a lot on prophecy. So if those of you that have been to Bible school, what do you get in your systematic theology classes, right? You get a semester maybe on eschatology, and that's it, unless maybe you go to advanced classes. So it's, And it truly is. It's no fault uh, of the pastors. They get concerned. It's like, man, you know, I don't know if I know this stuff well enough. I kind of try and stay away from it. I've, I've been told that by a lot of pastors, that, and that's fine. I get it. So that's the awkward piece. So what do I do if you decide to use us or another prophecy uh, teacher, which, by the way, there's not a lot of us running around. I think I'm one of maybe a handful that's actually full-time at this. That That's all I do. So it's pretty hard to, uh, to find teachers, but I can help you if you'd like some references besides myself. But here's things that people are interested in. They truly want to know about it. When I go into churches and preach on these subjects, here's what happens afterwards. The people in the churches, what do they do? They come back and say, wow, this was great, it's wonderful, you know, we don't we don't get a lot of this. And, and those of you that are pastors in the room, you can't preach on prophecy every week, right? I mean, you'd run the people out eventually. They have so many other things, so many other parts of Scripture that are important, but these things are important. So what are the concepts that uh, we go through or that we can go through topically? So these are just some of the top concepts to try and get our minds going. So the rapture of the church, that is the next major event, if you will, on God's calendar. The rapture of the church, we all know it, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. And by the way, this is where we start most conferences, because people are confused about the rapture versus what? The second coming. Many people have been taught, and especially if they haven't been in your churches, that uh, there's, there's the same event. So here's how I always start, or at least within the first 15 minutes, how we start a prophecy conference. And I say, listen, folks, would you watch my hand? We're going to explain what the rapture is. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain, should it happen in our generation, shall be caught up together with them, where? In the clouds, in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And, I, and the next thing that we bring out is, wait a minute, where did Jesus say he would meet the church? On the earth? Or in the air? Boom. Rapture of the church is not looking for signs, but listening for sounds. The voice of the archangel, trump of God, and so forth. Those are the sounds that we're waiting for. It could happen any moment. It could happen before we finish this conference. Okay? It could happen before I finish. And you'd say amen to that. But then we look at, then we bring in the second coming. What's the second coming? It's when Jesus lands where? On the earth. How do we prove that? Well, go to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, where it says that Jesus will descend upon what? The Mount of Olives. He'll split it in two. How do we know that? Well, we go back to Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Where when Jesus was ascending, and I love this passage, Jesus is ascending up to heaven. The disciples are doing this. Now folks, 
Just think, if you're watching somebody ascend up to heaven, you think you might watch it? I, you know, I think it would get my attention, right? You know, looking up. And, and what happens in the passage? I really get a kick out of this. So it says, two men and white angels come up to the disciples and say, why are you staring? Why are you looking up into the space, basically? This same Jesus that you saw ascend up to heaven shall so come back just as you saw him leave. Get out and get busy. That's basically, that's kind of the way the passage goes. And, and I love it because it ties right into Zechariah, written hundreds of years prophesying uh, that Jesus will, hundreds of years before uh, Acts was written, that Christ will come back on the Mount of Olives. So these are, these are things that get people's attention. It's prophecy. It's helpful. It's seeing the Bible from a whole different uh, look than just, okay, so what's happening today? We'll explain why prophecy is important as we go through this. Because here's what a lot of pastors will say. Why do I care about what's going to happen after we're gone? And the response is this. 27% of your Bible was prophecy when written, which means it's important to the Lord. Paul stresses over and over again in Timothy and Titus the importance of sound doctrine. So we've heard, and I I forget who the speaker was, went through uh, some of the the major theological things that we study. So we study, I think it was Dr. Woods actually, he went through harmatology, study of sin, angelology, that, that one's easy, right? Angels, Satanology, uh, Bibliology, Theology proper, all these things. And we get that eschatology, and here's what we're hearing in our communities today. You know, it's too controversial. I stay away from it. The most famous little quip that comes along with that is individuals that have said, you know, It'll all work out in the end. And they call it, and this, the, the quote that's often given is an individual who says, Listen, I am a pan theologian. Have you heard that one? I'm a pan theologian because it's what? It's all going to pan out in the end. And I say, That's not sound doctrine, folks. All right? So we're teaching sound doctrine, all these different things. What's the time of the Gentiles? Tribulation, the great tribulation, the day of the Lord, uh, the satanic trinity. Abomination of death, all these different topics are things that people truly are excited about. They, in my opinion, and I think in God's opinion, because it's in Scripture, are things that are helpful in what we do. All right, see if this guy's going to work. There we go. All right, so how are we going to use these things to reach our community? So I'm going to give you a couple of ideas this morning again. Those were topical type things. You can preach those topics, by the way. You can find a specific passage. If you only like expository preaching in your church, we got expository messages for every single one of those concepts. There's specific passages that apply. Uh, of course, in theology, what's the difference between studying something from a systematic theology point versus, a, if you will, a bibliology kind of thing? Well, systematic theology does what? It takes 66 books, pulls all the information together, so, uh, and again, some churches, you're expository only, that's cool, uh, that can be done as well. Alright, so, we'll look into just a moment at Matthew 24 and 25 to give you a little bit of a taste of how uh, at least our prophecy conferences go. So the Olivet Discourse, 100% prophecy when given. One prophecy's been fulfilled in the Olivet Discourse, the rest are yet to take place. Uh, the rapture, again, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15. People want to understand about the rapture versus the second coming. 
day of the Lord, extremely controversial. That passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, one of the most controversial passages when it comes to eschatology. Specifically, we got people in the mid-trib, pre-wrath position and so forth that really like to play with that one. So we come in, uh, especially if you have those issues in your church. Not everybody, believe it or not, in your church is pre-trib like uh, the IFCA is, right? So we know how to teach those things, to go to the passages that are tough. We never, and it, let me say this too because I skipped it. When at least our ministry comes in, we do not do a couple of things. Number one, we do not spiritualize the text. We do not allegorize the text, and we do not preach sensationalized messages. There's a ton of current events out there that we can twist and turn and make them, if you will, well, this is prophecy. Now, we don't do that. If there's specific, Let me give you one example of of an event that's taking place in Israel as we speak that does have prophetic significance. In fact, I read your article on it about a week ago. What is happening with the Jewish people in Israel right now? They're coming back. 14 million Jewish people in the world today, approximately based on the census, 6.5 million Jewish people have returned to Israel. Now folks, is there anything in prophecy about that happening? You betcha, right? In 1948, how many Jewish people lived in Israel? A handful, not a lot. In 1800s, they started coming back, and it's been building up. But wow, since 1948, what's happened? There's been an exponential increase in people making Aliyah. Aliyah means people returning, going back to live in Israel. Why is 6.5 million Jewish people leaving countries all around the world, Russia, uh, Ethiopia, America, other places, and going back? Well, there's a, some kind of magnetic thing that God's pulling the people back. That's setting, and one of my other good friends says this, it's setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. It's putting things in perspective. Things are starting to happen. The prophetic calendar is starting to move forward. We're going to see prophecy fulfilled. When is it all going to be fulfilled? Why we're here? My wife is saying, no, is she right? Yeah, she's right. She goes to the plot, right? So that, don't get tricked up by that. Prophecy will all come to pass, but what age do we live in now? We live in the church age. Let me take you to Israel just for a moment. It's a little grainy because I got it on that goofy background, but here's just a little taste of things that will take place in the Olivet Discourse. All right? This is what's known right here as the Kidron Valley. On the left of that is what is the Temple Mount. Okay, so how many have been in Israel here? All right, oh, quite a few. Good, so you're familiar with it. All right, so this is where the first and the second temples stood. And if you'll see the gold dome building there right now, is that one of God's temples? No, it's the Dome of the Rock, and it's an Islamic mosque that was built in the, uh, about, uh, let's see, 695 A.D. Right in front of it, what you really can't see is a pewter dome building on God's Temple Mount, which happens to be an Islamic mosque, Al-Aqsa Mosque. But let's, let me take you back to, to about 30, 33 AD, based on how you date things, and I won't get into the argument on that right now, uh, but let's assume the second temple is there. It's Brown, 30 AD, and Jesus is walking into the temple to teach. Literally, two 
days before he's going to be arrested and subsequently crucified. He's in this, this area with his disciples across the street from or across the Kidron Valley. So it's about a 15-minute walk if you walk out of the temple area, come down the Kidron Valley and start to ascend the temple or uh, the Mount of Olives. Mm. So Jesus is in the temple. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24 real quick and just look at a couple of verses. Now I'm taking you into something that we would do in a prophecy conference just as a little example here. So in Matthew chapter 24, I got the New King James Version, you may have others. It says this, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to him to show him the buildings of the temple. So the disciples are excited. I mean, here we got fishermen. we got people that don't have a lot of money. They're coming in from all over uh, the countryside. And here's the disciples. Jesus is walking out of what would have been the temple at that time in 70 AD. And they stop him and say, Jesus, take a look at this. Take a look at this beautiful, massive, wonderful temple. And here's what Jesus says in verse 2. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. That's astounding. Here's one of the illustrations I like to use. Let's go back to 2001. Let's get on an imaginary bus or a plane and take a trip out to New York. Let's stand in front of the Twin Towers. You get in front of the Twin Towers, they're so massively tall you can literally not see the top of them if you're standing next to them. Massive, powerful, big, iron, uh, uh, concrete, massive buildings. Got to be indestructible, unbelievable. And all of a sudden you go back to the hotel room, you get on the television, you hear some big noises, and what happens? Airplane flies into one, comes down. Airplane flies into number two. It comes down. The disciples are looking at the temple, just like we would look at the big giant twin towers, like it's the most massive, beautiful building we've ever seen. And then Jesus punches them in the nose, so to speak, and says it's coming down. They're like, verse 3. Now, as he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives across the street here, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? When's that temple coming down, Jesus? You just blew my mind in common vernacular, right? That's coming down. When it's going to happen? Then he asked him another two-part question. And what will be the sign? Did you catch that? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What are they asking him? First of all, did the disciples at this point know about the church age and everything that we know today? The answer is no. By the way, that's why the Olivet Discourse is so often misinterpreted and mispreached. Not by RCA folks. Where do they put this? They look at it as signs for the rapture, not the second coming. Total mischaracterization. It doesn't answer the contextual, the uh, grammatical, the literal interpretation. I missed one. Historical, contextual, grammatical, literal. There you go. Don't want to miss one. All right, so the disciples say, Lord, what, what is the sign? When is the temple coming down? And by the way, catch the words. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of who's coming? Who's? Your coming. Who are they talking to? Who are they, who are they talk? Who are the disciples addressing? They're saying, Jesus, when are you coming? That's exactly what's going on. So what's going on in their minds? What are they looking for? 
looking for the second coming. They're looking for the kingdom to be set up when Jesus will rule and reign on this earth, all right, which is all over the Old Testament and all over the New Testament. So what takes place? Again, here's a couple other things, and I'm, I'm going to skip around a little bit because these are the things we can bring to your church. I'm standing out, we're actually looking down. So this is the high point, looking down. This is, for those of you, of course, that have been there, know that that is what? The Mount of Olives. What are all those things on, on all these things here for those that haven't been there? They're, they're, yeah, they're, 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 they're plots, they're graves. Orthodox Jewish cemetery. Now, and you, Dr. Rice, or someone else might be able to correct me on this. When I first started going to Israel in 2009, I asked a Orthodox priest, or not Orthodox priest, Orthodox rabbi, who's buried? I had no clue what it was. And how much does it cost you to get a plot here? In 2009, the individual told me it costs approximately 100,000 American dollars to be buried in this spot. I'm like, okay. Last year when I went, I asked a rabbi the exact same question. How much does it cost to get a burial plot in this area? Now, I don't know if they inflated the price, if he knew what he was talking about, but he told me it'll cost up to one million American dollars to get a plot on this land. Why? Why would the Jewish people pay these exorbitant prices? Whether those numbers are right or wrong, I can't tell you except what they told me. Well, the Jewish people also, what, what uh, set of scriptures do they use? They use the they use the Old Testament. They use the in their vernacular the Tanakh, the Old Testament in our vernacular, right? Are they aware, reading their Old Testament, that Jesus is that not Jesus to them, but the Messiah will come through right here? What is that? Eastern Gate. Is Jesus going to come when he returns? Is he going to go through the Eastern Gate? Well, Ezekiel tells us uh, gives us that clue. All right. So here we have in Zechariah. So here we have, in their, in their concept, Jesus is going to come, or the Messiah, I keep saying Jesus because we know who he is, the Messiah is going to come in through the east. The Talmud, extra-biblical Jewish writings, say what? When the Messiah comes, these individuals will be the first to be resurrected. Now, Christians, is that true? No. Is it true to the Jewish people? A million bucks worth of truth. Right? They're investing. So, that's that. I'm going to take you down. This is the Kidron Valley. Of course, this is this is the outskirts, the old city of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount area. Right along here, which you really can't see, but these are graves. Do you know who's buried there? Who's the, who? Muslims. Muslims. Why in the world are the Muslims burying their people on the side of the Eastern Gate, folks? Keep Jesus from coming through the gate. Because he will not defile himself. Uh, well, again, right? Okay, but see, these are the things. These are the things that people are like, wow, you know, it's exciting. It's what's going on. Here's the things that are happening. Here's where uh, the Lord will come and uh, eventually set up his, catch this now, which temple, number-wise? One, two, three, or four. Four. All right, so how many temples are there? By the way, we have a series called Temples Tell the Times. It goes through the complete dispensational calendar by going through what temples existed at what times. That's a whole other thing. I'm going to run out of time, so I better not go there. But here's the thing. First and second temple period, have they come and gone? Well, wait a minute. Let's finish our, let's finish our text. So the Muslims have uh, uh, graves put here because they think that will keep the Messiah from coming through. Wrong again. 
Because Scripture has to be fulfilled. Can we say that? All right. <laughs> it's going to be fulfilled. He's going to come back there. So then we like to use charts. Now, if I don't explain that, some of you are going to call me a heretic right now. Okay, so we put the Olivet Discourse up there because that's one of the messages that we use it in. When Jesus is delivering the Olivet Discourse, it's two days before what's going to happen? He's going to be arrested in Gethsemane. It tells us that in chapter 26. So, we're literally on the, on right here on the cross. He's two days away from going to the cross. He's teaching the disciples about things that will happen right before his second coming, specifically the seven-year tribulation period. So here's where people, a lot of folks in our churches, they don't know this stuff. It's helpful if they get it. And it's very instructional for the unsaved when they start to put these pieces together. So, here, we'll, we'll make a kind of a broad statement. Here we have, after the cross, shortly thereafter, the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, we have the start of the what? The church age. Okay, we're all part of the, the body of Christ during this church age period. Jesus is not addressing this group. We all, right at the beginning of our, our session, we talked about the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, where God's people, the church, will be brought up. Where in Scripture is God's prophetic calendar? If I ask for one specific passage, what would you come up with? Well, I'll tell you the one that I think is the most prolific in Scripture. Daniel's 70-week prophecy. Where does the church age fit in Daniel's prophecy? You go to Daniel 9, chapter 26. What happens? We end the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy. We're in a gap time at this point. Two events are to take place that Daniel talks about in verse 26 of Daniel 9. The first one is what? Messiah is going to be cut off. Folks, you were, this, this is so amazing. And there's many folks in our church, if you said, can you actually come up with a passage in Scripture that dates when Jesus Christ would come and die? How many of our people would be able to say, oh yeah, of course, it's right blank. Is it in there? Oh yeah, it's in there. Where's the meat, right? It's in there. This is in there. You go to Daniel chapter 9, you go through verses 24 to 26, it spells out exactly when Christ was to come. It says what? A decree will be made to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem after what? After the first temple is destroyed. You move forward 483 years from that decree for the first 69 weeks and it takes you up to, according to Sir Robert Anderson who wrote the book The Coming Coming Prince in the 1800s, that what would happen? that the triumphal entry would take place. So that's where his end point is. But literally, in 445 B.C., the decree was given. You come forward uh, 483 years, or 173,880 days from the prophetic calendar, and you pinpoint when Christ would come. Folks, that's one of the best Jewish evangelistic texts, by the way. So, the rapture takes place when? Well, wait a second. The second event in Daniel 9.26 is what? It tells us Christ will be crucified, and then what's going to happen? The temple's going to come down. Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 2, says what? The temple's going to come down. Forty years later, what happens? 
The temple came down. What's the next thing in Daniel 9, 26? Well, that's it. Daniel 9, 27 says, Then he, the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with the Jewish people, with the many, for what? For a seven-year period. This piece right here that we live in is not part of Daniel 9, 26-27. It is the part of the gap. I like to call it the second gap. The first gap includes the crucifixion, includes the destruction of the temple. Now we live in what's known as the church age gap. Where do you get that from? Colossians chapter 1, verses 24-29, Ephesians 3, 1-7, Romans 16, 25, and 26. Did you get that? Okay. So, Jesus says the temple is going to be coming down. That beautiful, massive uh, temple is going to come down. In 70 AD, 40 years after Jesus prophesied it, it came down. General Titus comes in, destroys it. How do we know that that's a fact? Those of you, again, all of you that have been to Israel, if you walked on the uh, western side of the Temple Mount, this is the Temple Mount, this is a modern picture, and you come down to this uh, southwestern section, you will see this giant package of stones. These are Herodian streets still from the first section, century. You see these little black things here? Those are people. These are stones. Okay, now I think of a stone, I think of a little thing I can pick up and throw. Jesus said not one stone will be left upon another that will not be cast down. Forty years later, Jesus' prophecy comes to pass exactly as given. You go to Israel and you can see it. Folks, what does that mean to people in your church? What does that mean to unsaved people when you look at something that was prophesied over 2,000 years ago, you take them to a picture in Israel, and you show them that the prophecy was fulfilled exactly as stated? Now, listen, as Christians, I want to jump up and say, good night, this is fantastic, it's true, it's, I mean, good night. I'm not Pentecostal, but I'll get the hands up on that one. All right? And there they are. It proves it happened. You go to, you go to Rome. How many of you have been to Rome and seen the Arch of Titus? Okay, a couple people. It's still, this is a modern, and not modern, it was, it was done in about 80-something, 80, 80 90 AD. It's known as the Arch of Titus. Who destroyed his, Who destroyed uh, Jerusalem? Who destroyed the temple? Titus, the Roman gen- general. This is Titus's arch. You see where my right pointer is? Right here. That's what's inside of it. When the Romans came in in Sunday AD and destroyed the temple, they took a bunch of items from the Jewish people because the Romans needed money. Rome had been burned down. It was destroyed. They're rebuilding. They need money. So when Titus came in, the, the, the soldiers come in, they start taking things. Well, that is a very obvious Jewish menorah that they stole, if you will, from the Jewish people and brought to Rome, documented on the Arch of Titus. Matthew 20, 24, again, we're not going to spend a whole lot more time because I want to go into the plan as to how we can use it to reach people. All these different things Jesus prophesied will happen after the rapture, in the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. These things will happen. You say, how do you know that? Because Matthew chapter 24, verse 8, talks about these things as what? The beginning of sorrows, the beginning of childbirth, the beginning of labor for when Jesus will come back. We all know these things, we won't go through them, but they will happen in the future. It ends up with lawlessness and so forth. These, of course, are modern-day pictures when these things will take place and they'll be totally fulfilled. It will be absolute chaos, death, destruction on the earth. 
These are things people want to know. When is this going to happen? Is it going to happen in my lifetime? The answer is maybe. You see, if Jesus comes back today, I know where I'm going, right? You know where you're going. We're out of here. But people that come into your church that are unsaved, and we'll show you how to do that in just a moment, this gets their attention. Now, is it, and it's some are like, well, should we try and preach fear, or should we treat, preach love? Should we? That's up to you. But God uses every one of the methodologies. He tells us what's coming. Quick story. I was preaching about less than a year ago in a church in Minnesota. Did a five-day prophecy conference, went through, I mean, much more in-depth than what we're doing in these 15 minutes. Way in the back was a lady who had been coming, and I do question and answer at the end of every session. She would ask questions. I could tell she she didn't know the story, right? She didn't get the she didn't get the stuff yet. So I'd answer her questions. Every single time I preach, unless a pastor tells me don't do it, and I've never had that happen yet, I give an evangelistic, you know, five minutes, sometimes a little bit longer, of an evangelistic invitation concept, and I don't give an invitation if pastors don't want it, but I'll at least give the gospel. Five times she listens to the gospel message. Day five. I didn't know what was going on. Pretty good-sized church. I couldn't see her, but she was way in the back row. I said, amen. I walked to the back of the church. The pastor got up, started his. lady walked up, came over to me, tears streaming down her face. How come nobody ever told me I could know for sure if I died, I'd go to heaven. I've been in Catholic all my life, and I've just realized I can trust Christ. Folks, that's what prophecy conferences can do. It edifies the saints. It excites them about what's coming. It, it gives them good biblical knowledge, and folks, God uses it to win folks to Christ as well. All right, uh, so many different prophetic books. We won't go through that because we want to get to the to the punchline here in a minute. What do people know about the abomination of desolation, right? When the temple is going to be defiled. When did it happen? When will it happen? Uh, we know back uh, in the time of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, he slaughters the pig, puts broth on, and causes the abomination of desolation. Well, is the abomination of desolation going to happen again? The answer is absolutely what? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Daniel 9, chapter 27, uh, Mark uh, chapter 13, verse 14, Matthew chapter 25, verse or chapter 24, verse 15, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4 tells about when the Antichrist will come in, he will uh, set up a false image, Revelation 13, and the abomination of desolation takes place. What happens to the Jewish people at that point? Are they good to go? They're good to run, and they're good to get slaughtered. One of the most upsetting passages in all of Scripture is Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9. It posts that you have Jewish friends, Jewish relatives that should strike home with you. In Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, it tells us this, that two-thirds of all Jewish people will die during this period, during the tribulation period. One-third will be saved, they'll be protected and brought through. Folks, that's a good evangelistic message for those of you that have Jewish people in your community. We're not going to go through Daniel 9 again, but there it is. Very quickly, Temple Institute, other things that we bring to your church. Again, the only thing, by the way, pastors, those of you that are considering something like this, we do nothing unless you approve it. Okay, It's like, here's where we're going to go. Are you good with this content, or do you want something else? You, you name it, that's what we'll do. 
All right, Temple Institute in Israel. Here is one of the most exciting prophetic things that is, if you will, setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Will there be another temple on that Temple Mount? There must be. You say, how do you know that? I just gave you about five read five passages just a minute ago because the abomination of desolation has to take place in a temple. That means a third temple has to be built. Well, let me see. Let's go to Israel right now. I'm going to take you on a, like a two-minute tour here. We're going to go to uh, um, the Temple Institute. If you want to know about what's going on in Israel, these are rab- Jewish rabbis that run this. This is not Christian. These are Jewish Orthodox rabbis that are preparing for the third temple to be built in Israel. And folks, I've seen these things with my own little beady eyes. This is my witness account of what is going on today that will set the stage for after we're raptured for these things to be fulfilled when the third temple will be built. Question. Here's for your theologians. When was the last temple destroyed? What year? A.D. 7. Why isn't there one today? You ever thought about that? Why is there not a third temple there right now? Okay, now this is a little, and I've been speculating, I'll tell you, but I think it's good educated speculation because i got 2,000 years of history to prove it. Where is the temple of the Holy Spirit today? Bam! You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes or no? Yes. Do we believe that? Sure. First Corinthians 6.19. Wait a second. Why didn't God allow a third temple to be built there yet? I, and again, it's a little speculation here, but it's, again, history bears it out. I don't think God's going to allow that third temple there until what? Until Daniel 9.27 can be fulfilled. When the Antichrist makes a covenant, allows the Jewish people to build what they've been waiting for for 2,000 years, the third Jewish temple. And here it comes. The Holy Land or the Holy Temple Visitor Center, here's what they have. Inside every single one of the major things that needs to be done and the minor things that need to be built, if you will, to be created, have been done. They're made. All these things are in place. The garments are in place. The menorahs are in place. The altar of incense is in place. The table of showbread. Everything has been made. The Jewish people are ready to pop up that third temple at a moment's notice. Rabbi Hyam Richmond, one of the heads of the Temple Institute, said this in a recent article. He said, if today we got permission to go and put the, uh, or got permission to start building the Temple, get the Dome of the Rock down. By the way, I know there's a bunch of controversy. Where's the third Temple going to be built? My position? Right where that Dome is. Why is that Dome going to come down? I'll just give you the passage. You can figure it out. Ezekiel 38 and 39. Muslims are going to get smacked butt big. I think that, speculative again, I think that will open the door for that third temple to be built. Bottom line is everything's there. High Richmond said, if we got permission to go up on the Temple Mount tomorrow, we would take our altar, which is built. There's a, there's a model of it. There's a model of their priest. We will take the altar, we will bring it up onto the Temple Mount. We will start sacrificing immediately while we're building the third temple. Do you know how mind-blowing that is, folks? Scripture is saying exactly what's going to take place. And it's coming. It's the, the, the stage again is being set for these prophecies that can be fulfilled. It's amazing. It, it, let me give this before I forget. And I've still haven't got to the plan. I better get there. 
Look at all these pictures. Okay, all these things are in place. They're all made. They're all Jewish things. The trumpets, the altar, the menorah, beautiful menorah. That, by the way, is the Valley of Armageddon. We know something about that. Revelation 16.16 talks about the Armageddon. Many different passages talk about the final battle, Revelation 19 and so forth. We go through all that if if you're interested. Here's, and I'll answer this in just a second. I like to tell people in conferences this. I said, you know, when I got saved, I trusted Jesus Christ by faith. For by grace you're saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, as anyone should boast. I said, Jesus did not come down, tap me on the shoulder, and say, hey, Rich, you need to trust me. Never touch me. I never audibly heard the voice of God. I heard his voice through the word of God that people read to me. That I heard. And that's what convicted me to trust Christ. I said, you know, I got saved 100% by faith and faith alone. I said, you know, now that I've been to Israel as many times as I've had, now that I see what God is doing, I see what the prophecies are that God is setting the stage to be fulfilled on. I said, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of faith when you see it in black and white. It's right there. I don't mean to, I don't mean to knock faith or anything else, but folks, these things are happening. It's taking place. Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5 says what? That Israel is the son of God's universe. All the nations revolve around it. If you want to know what's happening in prophecy, if you want to know what's happening in the world, you look to Jerusalem. Ezekiel 5 5. Most, asked, most uh, commonly asked question in Bible prophecy conferences. Your people want to know it. Five minutes and I'm done. They want to know the answer to this question. Where's American Bible prophecy? How many of you have been asked that? Probably lots of you, right? I see a bunch of hands going up. Most asked question. One of my uh, friends tells this story. He's preaching in a Bible conference. He's kind of a rough, tough kind of guy. He wasn't Dr. Ice. And uh, he was very kind and gracious. And uh, this guy stands up. Well, normally this particular guy, he's like, I don't want to, you know, just kind of sit down. I'll be talking around here. And this guy in the back jumps up and says, Hey, I know where America is in Bible prophecy. And the, the, the teacher was like, all right, sir. He was an older gentleman, so I guess he felt sorry for him. Okay, so go ahead, tell us. Where's America in Bible prophecy? He says, well, it's very simple. J-E-R-U-S-A-L-E-M. <laughs> and everybody did what you did, right? They left. Jerusalem. And then the teacher got to thinking, you know, and, he's, and he, would, he said, you know, this guy's exactly right. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 2, For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the house is rifled, the woman ravished, half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, battle of Armageddon, as he fights in the day of battle. At the battle of Armageddon, when I showed you that giant field, it will be filled with all nations coming up. They're going to come against, uh, literally, the Bible tells us at the end, against the Lord and all the nations that still exist. Did you catch that? Still exist. Will America still exist at that time? Don't know. Anybody says, well, I know America's here, here. What don't we do? We do not spiritualize. We do not allegorize the text. We tell it exactly as it's stated. If it's not there... We don't know. But if America still exists, they'll be there. All right, the plan in the last three minutes here. What can you do if, if, if you want a Bible prophecy conference? 
How, how, do you, how can you build your people and your church? First of all, in order to get people excited about something, who has to be excited about it? You guys, right? The leadership. It's like, listen, folks, and whether it's an evangelistic conference or a prophecy conference or anything else that you want to do, same concepts apply. You get your people pumped up. I already got the brochure for uh, next year's IFCA conference. I have a brochure for the pre-trip conference up in my room. You have to start advertising. Get people excited about what's coming. So you plan. You advertise. Get out, get out your topics. Make flyers. Go get people to go to your local businesses. Set up uh, 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 things in your newspapers, media, radio, TV, whatever you have, whatever you can afford. you got to get the word out. Then you prepare to bring in Christian visitors and the unsaved. How do you do that? You motivate your people. You get them out advertising. You tell them about what's taking place at your church. You get the people in. You will bring in people that are unchurched and are saved. A lot of people are sitting home back home in the church. This kind of thing will have to bring them in. When people know you're talking about prophecy and you say, listen, we're going to talk about the end times. We're going to talk about the end of the world. We're going to talk about what's going The unsaved, it gets their attention. All right? So I know i got to quit because I'm out of time. One last thing. But these will do it. If you contact us, we will help you go through these steps. No speculation, no sensationalizing, no spiritualizing, no allegorizing as the Word of God speaks for itself. Again, at the end of every single message, get the gospel. Unless the pastor says, listen, would you please not do it tonight? We won't do it. So we're there to serve you. So use the concepts. He's hopefully got a little excited about what's taking place in Israel uh, prophetically and so forth. If we can be of service, come see me, let us know. Otherwise, you're on your own. Have fun. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Thank you for these dear people that came here this morning. I pray now that you'd use them, Lord, to excite their churches through maybe using the prophetic uh, scriptures and bringing in others. And, Father, we want to do this all for your glory. So, Father, we commit it to you and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here.